Appendix B. The Cavalry on Trumpets and Horses. When I began this book two years ago, it was going to be called Cavalry. It was going to be a book about how a church can become what it was meant to be, why most churches don't reach their redemptive potential, and how we can. The idea for the title came from a quote from Tim Keller that I can't find and only vaguely remember. He said something like, Leaders in the church have all kinds of visions, but they don't have the cavalry to actually get those visions accomplished. They can blow the trumpet, but there are no horses to carry out the charge. There's a huge difference between having a vision and having an impact, just like there's a big difference between sounding a trumpet and actually unleashing a cavalry charge. It's one thing to have a trumpet. It's another thing to have 5,000 horses trained for battle and ready to go. There's no shortage of visionary trumpet blasts. The shortage is in the horses. When a church seems to be doing poorly, it's fairly common for people to assume that it's lacking vision. People say, what that church needs is a visionary leader. This is what often passes for a sophisticated answer for church woes. In the last 50 years or so, our culture's demand for leadership books and success gurus has continually grown. Every Christian leader seems to know that they should be casting the vision dreaming a big, hairy, audacious dream. I hear it everywhere, and yet so few of these visions or dreams become realities. So few redemptive ideas become redemptive stories. These days, people just seem to yawn at them. I've become more and more convinced over the course of 20 years of ministry that the typical church's problem isn't really a lack of vision. I believe what we lack is character and conviction. We need courageous, humble, sacrificial godliness. I believe we are not short on trumpets. Churches are short on horses. Dreams are a dime a dozen and spring up overnight. Substantive godly Christians are forged through years in the gracious striving of sanctification. This is what we lack. And when it is missing, we dream up crummy dreams, dim and worldly visions. If we want to live redemptive stories rather than just dream redemptive dreams, we need a renewal in character and conviction. If we want to lead a movement advancing the gospel in the world, we need people of spiritual substance. The trumpet needs a cavalry. We can only do this together. I've tried to simplify and clarify the push to this spiritual substance in the preceding pages. Yet for the church to be great we require one additional and very specific conviction. It might even be called a vision, but it is not a vision for the church. It is a vision of the church. It is a conviction about the potency of the people of God, the power of our message, and the potential for redemption in our generation, even in our most difficult cities. Finding the Bar I've been told through all my years in ministry, through my whole life, really, what is and isn't possible in churches. Most of my church experiences have been unsatisfying and didn't seem to resemble at all the idea or experience of the church in the Bible. I have since studied the statistics on church decline and church growth. I've been told that if you can do what the good churches are doing, you're a success. Growing churches make up 6% or less of all churches, 
So it's easy to think that if you're in that group, you're doing great. This bar of success is not only intoxicating for pastors, but for all Christians. Everyone wants to be a success. There is a subtle distinction here that can be very destructive if we miss it. Very soon in our desire for success, we move from looking for inspiration to looking for validation. The first can be life-giving and faith-building. The second is deadly. Looking for inspiration from churches where God is moving in great ways can be very motivating, especially if you have personal relationships with them. This is because you are not looking so much at the outcome statistics as the fiery faith, sacrifice, and creativity of those doing the work. When we simply look at impersonal reports of what churches in America are doing numerically, we end up looking primarily for validation, checking how we measure up. There are a few things as deadly as this. We will tend either to fear our stagnant numbers or take pride in our growth, even if we find it through creative counting. Looking for validation instead of inspiration leads us away from faith and grace. We start to crave the validation of success and fear the shame of failure. We stop thinking about what we are doing and become fixated on outcomes we can't control. Why do we fall for this worldly obsession with validation? Why would we allow ourselves to look at some man-made bar of success to affirm our work in the gospel? We like to think that it's because we want to be realists about how we're doing. Measuring is being honest. We are clear-minded people, right? What if I said that it is a coping mechanism to deal with our disappointment with the church, the gospel, and God himself? When we look at this sort of success a little closer, we see that very few of these churches are actually leading people to Christ and making significant differences in their communities. Few are marked by godliness, high biblical literacy, or generosity in investing their resources in the kingdom of God. I have no interest in attacking these churches, but isn't it foolish to judge ourselves by them? So why do we do it? Let me offer a rarely stated reason we may be tempted to look at such churches as our standard. We don't really think anything more is possible. We fear that no matter how much we sacrifice for a redemptive vision, the cultural soil of our generation is simply too hard and barren. The time isn't right. We live in a moment in which the gospel is in decline. The Bible tells us about a time when God's people felt this way, and he talked to them about it. In the beginning of Haggai, God asks them, Is it time for you to build your really nice houses rather than build the house of God? Chapter 1, verse 4, paraphrase. God starts out tough and in their faces. In the verses that follow, he says that he will undermine the wealth they built for themselves if they continue to neglect his house. But he doesn't end with that motivating threat. God's deeper word for them is in chapter 2. Underneath their pride and their worldliness lurks their real issue, spiritual fear. And the work of God that they were participating in seemed to them like nothing. Haggai chapter 2 verse 3. It didn't seem to be going anywhere. It didn't seem historic. It didn't seem like something that would be revered and remembered forever, so they concluded it wasn't worth doing. That's why they had given up. That's why they had settled for something less 
and God's message to them is, be strong and work, for I am with you. Haggai chapter 2, verse 4b. Jesus had a different perspective than the Israelites. His success was also minimal. At the end of his life, even after his resurrection, the disciples only numbered about 120 in the upper room, with possibly 500 total. That probably didn't seem like all that big of a deal, but that didn't faze Jesus in the slightest. No builder builds because he sees the building. Faith has a sight all its own, and it is the only sight that can create. Keeping up with the fruit. Every builder builds out of faith. Every warrior fights out of conviction. Every mother nurtures in hope. Every farmer plants in trust. We may tell ourselves that this generation cannot believe and be shaped by the gospel, but that's a lie. That's our fear and atheism talking. Jesus taught and modeled the truth for us. In Matthew 9, verses 36 and 38, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this harvest field. Luke 10, chapter 1, verse 3 says, After this, the Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. And in John chapter 4, verses 34 through 38, we find, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, It's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. The harvest is not limited by the crops. In reality, the fruit is rotting on the vine before the harvesters can pick it. Frankly, the way Jesus sees the world is the opposite of how we see the world. We believe we are many harvesters harvesting barren trees twice picked over. We think we are going over cornfields already combined, searching for a kernel here and a broken cob there. This is how I feel more than I want to admit. I'd venture to say most of us feel the same way, but we are wrong. Our pride and fear tell us that the realization that we're wrong is bad news. We know that if the problem is not the crop, then the problem is us. That stinks. It feels unreasonable. But in reality, it's great news. So what if it implies our future? It means our pessimism is false. It means that there's a harvest to be brought in and that the gates of hell must fall against the charge of a true cavalry. It means that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And there are many more who would believe than we thought. It means that God's election is not stingy, but generous. 
And it means that, like any harvest, the greatest thing that can happen happens in the midst of a normal, humdrum life. Normal, not typical. The sound of a charging cavalry might seem astounding and rare, but it's made up of a thousand perfectly typical sounds. The steady beat of a single horse's steps. The church can be that cavalry. We can harvest the field. It is time to be strong and to do the work. Not because its success is obvious. Not because the vision is great. Not even because we will accomplish a great vision. The temple they finished in Haggai wasn't anywhere near as great as the Temple of Solomon. They died without knowing that the Messiah would come to that temple. All they knew was that God had given them something to do, and they couldn't waste their lives and money on slightly better houses. They couldn't keep covering over their fear. Faith demanded something. Strength, work, and trust. It's the same for us. This is why this book ended up being about forging spiritual substance in each of us. If we become people of substance, and if we believe that Jesus created a church that would bring in a harvest, then whatever the vision, this is no time to sit on our hands in thinly veiled pessimism. It is no time to get caught up in the world because we think nothing is going to happen in the kingdom. Jesus is working to take in a harvest, and he's doing it through his church. He called all of us to this work. He makes no promise about our names being remembered or our seeing any success in this life. He just calls us over and over. Trust him, be strong, and do the work. For he said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew chapter 28, 20b. And that concludes the book Substance, Becoming Oaks of Righteousness in a World of Vapor, written by Nicola Gibson.